0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show.
1: Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. (laughs) Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The AccuNet Mortgage
0: Talking. And text line is open now give jeff a call at 855-616-1620 coming up next squirrel and now wtmj's jeff wagner
1: good afternoon wisconsin welcome to the show eric bilstat more evidence that you chose the wrong aspect of this particular profession are you a uh, – do you like Tony Romo, an analyst sure, on yeah. CBS? Yeah, he think does, he does okay. a good job. I think he okay. does a good
0: job. He predicts a lot of things. And
1: okay, he he is an analyst at CBS, and, he I mean, he just retired, what, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. yep. so he's gotten all sorts of po- – I think he does a good job, too. Yeah. I, I think his, his real strength is saying th- this is the play, this is what's going to happen, this is what they're running, in a way that other analysts don't. Sounds like a guy on the couch with you. He, he does, and, of course, he's a local guy from mm-hmm. what Kenosha, right? Okay, okay. so he is – he is on the verge of becoming the highest-paid sports sportscaster of all time. Newer, his contract with CBS is up at the end of the season. Okay. He makes $4 million a year, and this will stick in some people's craw. The, the highest-paid sportscaster right now, analyst, is Troy Aikman, okay. who makes $7.5 half million? All right. The report at this morning is that ESPN is getting ready to offer Tony Romo a deal between ten and fourteen million dollars wow. a year to jump from CBS and to go over to ESPN. So, I mean, Troy Aikman makes seven point five. This would this would blow the doors off all these records. So, what would he do? The Monday, Monday Night, night, night Football. Okay. Yeah, they've been they, they've they've had problems, and so mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. presumably they'd get rid of Booger McFarland sure, and they right, bring in yeah. Romo. There's also a chance. Apparently, when the next NFL TV contract comes up. There is some speculation that ESPN might be going after Sunday afternoon games as ah, well. Okay. But anyways, this would so 10 to 14 million dollars is the deal. CBS has the right of first refusal. They could match. But the, the things I'm seeing is the way they're structuring this is that CBS won't be able to afford to match. You wow. know how they, you do that. But 10 to 14 million dollars a year. So, well,, hey, good work if you can get it good work right good, good work if you can get it I, and actually that's not the most amazing thing to me. It, it continues to be that they pay Troy Aikman seven point <laughs> five <$7. laughs> <$7. laughs> million dollars that's that's the kind of let's like rub that salt into the mm-hmm. open wound. All right, I was at the ball game yesterday, had, had a just a, a wonderful time. Again, if you I was saying this earlier, um there, there's a Twitter photo of my my lovely wife Fran and my close friend Evan and his son. We went up there and we we we're, were all we were all dressed for the occasion. It was in the low 20s. Um the the thing the the thing that saved it is there wasn't much wind. And so it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And I, I do, I look like, um, you know, Ralphie's little brother Randy in the Christmas story because I had layers. I had my Packer, I had Packers t-shirt and then I had a flannel shirt and then I had a sweatshirt and then I had my Jerry Kramer Hall of Fame jersey and then I had my parka. And I mean, it was just, and I had my fleece line jeans that were warm and, and I had my hand warmers and my mittens and stuff. And it was, it was actually, it was fine. Great game. Second half was one where you're kind of like the the crowd. I think we were all kind of stunned watching this and, and hoping we wouldn't see a repeat. But all's well that ends well. Okay, that is not the aspect of the game that I want to talk to you about. If you had the privilege and it was a privilege of attending the game and you were on the roadways after the game, our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I took a bus up there through, um belonged to the Wisconsin club, so they, they had this bus that leaves from downtown and went up there. Our bus, well, it was scheduled to leave about 9.30 last night. We had a little bit of trouble getting out of the parking lot because there was heavy traffic. We pulled into the Wisconsin Club, downtown Milwaukee, at about 10 minutes to 2. It took over four hours on the bus to make that southbound trip. And, you know, what would it normally be? About 90 minutes. I am not necessarily complaining because my hero is our bus driver, Denise, because the roads, I, I, there were more than one occasion where I was thinking, this just is not going to happen. We're going to end up in a ditch or in an accident or, or whatever. The roads were bumper to bumper, pretty much from leaving County, County Stadium, leaving Lambeau Field, certainly through Ozaki County. Moreover, I would have two words for officials in Brown County, Manitowoc County, and Sheboygan County. And those two words would be road salt because they did not have it out there. I didn't. I, let me be honest. Before we got to Ozaki County, I saw one snowplow. That snowplow was sitting by the side of the road on an on-ramp. I think probably looking at all the traffic that was going back, the road's They certainly hadn't been plowed. I don't believe that they had been salted, at least in Brown County, Manitowoc County, and Sheboygan County. And so as a result, I mean, you had jammed traffic, and you had people at at some point in time, 15 to 20. I don't think we ever got above 30 miles to 35 miles an hour. It was a huge white-knuckle drive. And I understand the snow started at a bad time yesterday, started about nine o'clock in the evening, right as people were starting to leave. At the same time, the snow had been predicted. We knew that this was going to come. And it did not seem to me and to anybody else in our bus and anybody else, I think, driving that route, that there had been any material preparation to deal with, like, let's put down some salt or something to stop the roads from becoming slippery, because, heck, they've got 80,000 almost people that are attending Lambeau Field last night, and a whole lot of them are going to be driving south on I-43. Maybe we should get, I don't know, the roads a little clear. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, took us over four hours to get there. I was talking to two colleagues of mine who also... Both um, had to make that drive one four and a half hours, another one um, a little bit less, but that 's because a lot of the traffic had abated because they waited till like midnight or something to leave all right eight five five six one six one six twenty that is the acadet mortgage talk and text line. This is the second time this year after a packer 's game that you have had i, I think uh, n- not an extraordinary weather event. But road crews completely and totally unable, unwilling to deal with this. Were you on the road on the way back after the Packer game? How long did it take you and what's going on? We discuss in just a minute. Gru is lining up the calls. If you want to join us, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think some people have some explaining to do. It's a miracle there were not more cars involved in collisions or off the side of the road. We saw several because the roads were slippery, um, snow covered. You knew this was going to happen, though. All right, let's start with Jeff in Sheboygan. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how are you doing? We got back safely.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, exactly. Me too. Uh, I did not get to go to the game. I was working. I drive through a chauffeur service. And uh, I picked up some people at the airport. And it took us over two hours to get back to Sheboygan. And I'm just surprised nobody was in the ditch. There, it was horrible out there.
1: I and, and I guess, see, and the frustrating thing to me is, I mean, it wasn't that extraordinary. I mean, you had a little bit of light snow. It was a little bit slippery. But if you had put down salt or something, a, at least the cars would have had a more fighting chance. I don't know about you. I Again, with the exception of the one snow plow that I saw sitting on an on-ramp, I didn't see any plows at all until we got closer to the city of Milwaukee.
2: I saw one coming out of Green Bay. It was coming on the on ramp, and it stopped, and it was waiting for all the traffic to go by before it did anything.
1: Well, no, thanks. Well, that's. I mean, that's what I was kind of thinking. If you if you were too slow, if they didn't get ahead of this. And and, I mean, I don't know what you end up doing because I I, you got to believe me, this is the freeway. It's 15 to 20 miles an hour and it's bumper to bumper. It is like an L.A. traffic jam. And so, I mean, I do appreciate that if you didn't get out ahead of this and get the road salted or whatever. After the game, when you have tens of thousands of cars, it seemed that are on this road. And I mean, the the line just went on forever, all the way from Green Bay down to Milwaukee. If you hadn't gotten ahead of it, I understand if I'm the snowplow drivers, I'm going, how, how do I even get on? I'm going to be going 30 miles an hour, which is all the more reason why you would have thought that somebody would have been ahead of this. We continue the conversation in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on.
0: You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: So very glad to have you with us. A couple people are saying that they were at the game and they left in the middle of the fourth quarter or with four or five minutes left, and they were able to beat some of the traffic and it wasn't as long a drive. And I didn't have that option because I had gone up on a bus. But I I tell you something, you know, once those crowds hit, it was it was just an absolute mess. Jim in Burlington. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, first time I've ever called in, but I, I just had to call. My, my son and I went up to the game, and we got in our truck about 9 o'clock. We left just when they got converted to third down, you know, and then ran the clock out. Right. And we got right on the highway, and kind of interesting, all the way back to Burlington, which took us about three and a half hours. We counted 18 snowplows. Going in the northbound lanes, you know, at various times, all the way through, you know, Brown County to, to out, out of Gamey County, Winnebago, you know, Fond du Lac on Highway 41. And we did not want it run into one in the north, in the southbound lanes. And the roads went from okay, you know, as we left because we got out right away to, to bad to horrible. Yeah. And uh, it was just amazing to us. That we had no salt or nothing on any of those southbound lanes well, well, all right. the way through all those counties. Yeah,
1: I mean that—that's right. That—that's the incredible thing about it. Okay, you've got yeah. eighty thousand people that are leaving Green Bay, yep. and you—you you would okay. Where do we need the salt trucks? Where do we need the plows? <laughs> we need them going south, or we need most of them going south. But so the road. Yeah, yes, I, you don't think I'm exaggerating? The roads were really bad. No, not night. at all.
2: And we, we, my son, and I kept kept saying. You know they knew this was coming. They had eighty thousand people, and probably seventy five percent of them are either heading on I forty three or forty one to the south to the valley or yeah. down to down by us here. You know, here in southern Wisconsin, and it's like they did nothing, and no. it was just like we're a head scratcher.
1: Well, it, now thanks for the call. I mean, it, it is a head scratcher because again, you you knew this was going to happen, and and look, and I understand. I understand Green Bay, small town. I understand there's only a couple ways in and out, and I understand that it's difficult. And the best of circumstances, you know, dry roads, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, it's difficult to get all those people that are leaving, it's difficult to get them out. I, I understand that, so I'm somewhat sympathetic. I am just saying, the roads, particularly the roads in Brown County, Manitowoc, and Sheboygan County, once we hit Ozaukee County the the pavement was more just, just wet because it had clearly been salted. But the those three counties, it, it was it was terrible. And if they had salt trucks out, you sure couldn't have told it. You, you shouldn't have to- couldn't have told it. And if if they delayed getting those salt trucks out because I don't know what what, what do you think? Maybe it's not going to snow. Can't you watch the radar? I mean, everybody in the stadium, we were watching the radar and we were seeing the snow coming. And I'm thinking, okay, well it's it's going to snow, but it's going to be an inch of snow or, or so, one to two inches of snow. Admittedly, at a bad time, should not have caused you know that problem. Um, and, you know, as far as uh, people leaving early, I, I get it. Like I say, that wasn't an option for me because I was up on a bus. But I don't know if, if I if I if, as a sports fan, if I had dumped all that money, you want to stay to the end, don't you? Um, you you want to stay, you know, to the end. Now, some people are saying, hey, you know, you think maybe the guys were just there watching the Packers game and they didn't get out until after the Packers game ended. Well, if that was the case, that wasn't a very good choice. Bottom line is it could have been a lot worse. I'm a little bit tired, but back and we completely and totally enjoyed the game. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But this is the second time that you've had minor snowfalls that have not been dealt with well by the road crews. And it's kind of surprising to me because I think we do winter pretty well in Wisconsin. But apparently when it comes to clearing off the freeways outside of, I don't know, Brown County and Manitowoc County and Sheboygan County, we, we still have a long way to go. By the way, I'm also, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Wagner 620 sent out a tweet the other day. Everybody was upset about the weather guys missing the forecast, that the, the quasi-bust forecast. That's what they call it when weather people get predictions really wrong. Now, Saturday, heavy wind Rain, little bit of ice in the morning, nasty day. But we didn't get anywhere close to six to ten inches of snow. They they missed it. It was, in large measure, a bust forecast. As I said though on my Twitter account, I I cut them a little bit of slack because I would have rather them been wrong and we only got two inches than than the weather forecasters be right and we got ten inches. That, that's that's kind of how I, I look at it. If you're going to have a bust forecast, I'd I'd rather you warn us and over over hype it and then it turns out to be nothing or at least essentially nothing so I'm not going to fault them too much but yeah not not a great weekend for some of the road crews in northern Wisconsin and not a great weekend for some of the weather forecasters across Wisconsin as well this is Jeff Wagner
0: Jeff Wagner on
1: WTMJ 855-616-1620 that's the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line The Milwaukee County County Executives race, Chris Abley is stepping down off to a very, very poor start. Let me be really clear here. If these allegations are correct, these candidates who screwed up don't belong on the ballot. Now, I I admit that now that I don't live in Milwaukee County anymore, I I don't have as much of a vested interest. But you you have seven people that are running to be the county executive to replace Chris Abley. Here is the deal, the primary is in early February. To get on the ballot, you need to turn in 2,000 signatures, meaning you have to have 2,000 people in this enormous county say that they want you on the ballot. The law allows you to turn in up to 4,000. Good candidates and good campaigns turn in closer to 4,000 than to 2,000. Why? because there's always there always turns out to be problems with with certain signatures Maybe it's somebody signs it who doesn't live in the county maybe there's an, a mistake made on the the date all, all these different things that's why you always turn in as close to the maximum signatures as you can get because if some signatures get thrown out or disqualified you've still got way enough to get you on the nominating ballot okay well, Here's the story. Journal Sentinel has it. Dan Vice breaks it. Um, Theo Lipscomb, who's the Milwaukee County Board Chairman, he has filed a challenge that the elections board is going to have to decide um, involving two of his opponents. One of the opponents, Glendale Mayor Brian Kennedy, the other former state senator Jim Sullivan. So here's the deal. They got to turn in 2000 valid signatures. Um, Kennedy, let's see, submits 2,900. So just a little over, uh, just a little under 3,000. Sullivan submits 2,690. Let's round up to 2,700. All right. Now you might say, Jeff, this this is, what is the problem? What, where, what is the issue? Well, here's the deal. Under state law, not people who circulate the nominating petitions, right? For a candidate, you're only allowed to circulate nominating petitions for one candidate. You can't circulate not for, for one candidate for one particular office. You can go get signatures for state senate and county executive and president, but you, you can't get signatures for multiple candidates for the same office. Follow? And there's a, there's a, there's a certification they say to that. What happens is if you do that, So let's say, you know, you want to get signatures for Theo Lipscomb and for Jim Sullivan. And so you're both running for the same office. What happens is the campaign that you got the signatures for first, right, those are valid. The ones after that aren't. So if you got them for Lipscomb first, the ones for Lipscomb count, the ones for Sullivan don't. It appears that what happened is a couple of these campaigns – The Sullivan campaign, the Kennedy campaign, and maybe others decided to farm out the process of getting signatures instead of getting the signatures themselves, or at least all of the signatures themselves. They hired third parties to go out and do it, which is. To me, I, the Journal Sentinel says it's commonplace for candidates. I don't, I don't know. Not, not if you're running a good campaign. It's not commonplace. But instead of getting the signatures themselves, they hired a third party to go out and get signatures. And then that third party hired a bunch of people. Oh, Here, go out and get signatures. And it hired the same people to get signatures for multiple offices, if you follow. So now it, for multiple candidates for the same office. So now it's a mess. It looks like, at least the allegations are, that about a thousand of the signatures that the Sullivan campaign got were gotten were obtained by somebody who had gotten signatures for another candidate. And if they do throw out a thousand signatures, Sullivan doesn't have enough to get on the ballot. The Kennedy campaign, it's, it's similar, close. Um, they're challenging 800 signatures out of 2,900. So even if you threw out that 800, uh, Kennedy would still have just enough to get on the ballot, but that's before the Elections Commission starts tossing out other signatures for you know some of the typical defects that you had. All right, so the campaigns are saying, oh, this is terrible. This is this effort to try to keep us off the ballot, to which I say nuts. I, I mean, if a campaign can't figure out how to get valid enough valid signatures to get them on the ballot. It's not a question of the Elections Commission depriving the voters an opportunity to vote for that candidate. It's a question of why can't the candidate follow the rules, and if they can't, boom, they don't belong on the ballot. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. And again, this, in my opinion, it all comes back to some of these campaigns being incredibly sloppy and deciding instead of getting signatures themselves, they decide to farm out the process to outside parties and then not check on the work the outside parties are doing. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is really clear, and I think this is really straightforward. And if it turns out that this did, in fact, happen, and admittedly that's an if, and you've got candidates who now, by throwing out – the law says you got to throw out the signatures if, you know – the same circulator got multiple sign got signatures for multiple candidates you got to throw those signatures out for the candidate who turned in the signatures later or who were the second one to get the signatures i think if this numbers these numbers hold these guys don't belong on the ballot is that an unduly harsh penalty or is it what happens when you decide that you're again going to outsource the process of getting your own signatures 855-616-1620 that's the academic mortgage talk and text line if this is the case these guys and they don't have their 2000 valid signatures boom they should be off the ballot and you know what they're going to have nobody to blame but themselves if this happens we discuss in just a moment back for more here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acadet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a text. Jeff, it's a sad thing when a candidate can't get signatures. Is there any time for them to try to get more? No. That that's it. That you have this deadline that you have to turn in your signatures. That's that's why I always shake my head at campaigns that turn in that they don't turn in closer to the maximum than they do to the minimum, especially if now you're you're not even getting your own signatures. If you're hiring third-party groups to go out and get the signatures, what, why not get closer to 4,000 so this issue doesn't come into play? Let's talk to John in Oconomowoc. John, you're on WTMJ.
2: Yeah, I think those numbers
0: should drop, Jeff. And as I told your uh, screener was that uh – that's just those, but I think the college kids who live out of state should they should be dropped off the roll
3: too.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk. Thanks for calling. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on. The rule the, now. This isn't a question of like dropping people off the rolls. The, the it, it's one of these things that just drives me crazy. And this you know goes back a long time ago when I ran for office. If you're going to run for office, and I don't care whether you're running for. You know, city clerk or whether you're running for school board or whether you're running for a statewide office or whether you're running to be the county executive of the, what, the most populous county in the state. I think it is reasonable to expect that you be, you as the candidate be familiar with the rules. And you know you take some personal responsibility for how you are going to handle this. You can't just offsource out. You can in some campaigns you can outsource all sorts of stuff, and it doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, I gee, I, if you're the per, the candidate, you're going to be buying time on radio stations. Okay, I understand why you might get somebody else to you know figure out what the best ad buys and things like that are. But when it comes to the basic stuff. The the easy stuff, the stuff that's going to get you on the ballot, this idea that, well, hey, we're we're not going to go out to the, I don't know, to the various events, the pancake breakfasts, whatever. We're not going to take it upon ourselves to generate the signatures we need. We're going to take the easy way out. We're going to hire people, and we're not going to have any controls over them, and we're going to trust that they know what they're doing, and then we're not going to... I don't know, verify some of this stuff. Now, I understand in this particular case, if you're the campaign and you get – Oh, no, hey, Gru just went out and and solicited 350 signatures. O- OK, I understand it might be difficult for you as the candidate to check. Gee, was Gru also hired to go out and solicit 350 signatures from some other, you know, candidate and campaign? And you might not know that, which is all the reason more reason why this is just a bad idea to begin with. And maybe it's harsh to knock a candidate off the ballot. And, and candidly, I, I think Jim Sullivan, I don't think Glendale Mayor Brian Kennedy has much of a chance to be elected county executive. Jim Sullivan... Maybe. I think Jim Sullivan, if you had to ask me how this all shapes out, I would say that uh, Liberal Senator Chris Larson is one of the two that comes through the primary. And then my guess is it would either be um, Jim Sullivan or County Board Chairman Theo Lipscomb. Those are the two that I think have the greatest chance of running second. But it's a seven-way primary. Who knows exactly? But I think Sullivan could easily have been or be one of the top Two candidates. He's a former state senator, still has a bunch of name recognition. He's more moderate than some of the other people that are out there. But I'm. And he would be one, given some of the choices that if I still lived in Milwaukee County and I don't, I might even have considered voting for, given the choices that are out there. But if you can't. If you can 't run a good enough or a straightforward enough campaign you don 't have enough controls in there to make sure that you 've got you 've got two thousand valid signatures well all right that that's just that 's just the way the cookie crumbles and it 's amazing to me that again in today 's day and age you still you still end up having these various problems, but it all starts with the campaigns. Outsourcing this very, very important function and not just saying, okay, we're going to get a bunch of volunteers. We're not going to hire somebody that we're not going to control. We're going to get a bunch of Sullivan campaign volunteers. We're going to get a bunch of Kennedy campaign volunteers, you know, and we're going to go out to three or four events over a weekend. You can get 2,000 signatures. You should be able to get 2,000 signatures in Milwaukee, you know, on, on one one day by attending events, you know, in the county on a on a Saturday. And you should be able to get four thousand signatures by attending events in Milwaukee County on a Saturday and a Sunday. No reason at all to farm this stuff out, to pay third parties to do it unless You're just being a little bit lazy, and this is one of the things that could happen. The elections board decides tomorrow what they do with these challenges, but I don't fault Theo Lipscomb for one minute for raising them. I mean, it's just what you do. If you're one of the opposing candidates, and you look and you see that some other campaign has arguably screwed up big time, well, of course you call them on it. Back with more in just a minute.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: So, Eric Bilstack, do you think the weathercasters get gun shy after like a, like a bust for a kid? Like they say if you're playing football, like cornerbacks. The, the people who are supposed to cover the receivers they say you, you can't have any you, you can have no memory at all because you know you you get beat on a play you can't let it get you right, down yeah, you've you go you got to come back you've got yeah. to completely forget that gee, you just got torched on that play I think <laughs> weather forecasters are like that <laughs> yeah. you know you just you just you you had that bust forecast on mm-hmm. Saturday you blew mm-hmm. it and you, then you come right on back and you say oh there's going to be another major snowstorm on Friday or right, whatever yeah, you, you have to you have to just be like that just kind of go with your instincts no memories, right. well as, as I as I was saying I, I, I tweeted this out i yes it it was a nasty storm on saturday i mean we had lots of wind and stuff Mm -hmm. and in the morning i my wife uh went with her daughter and granddaughter they went down to chicago for the day and they they took the train and i will tell you they took the eight o'clock train and it was a white knuckle dry i took her down to the train i mean because the roads were slippery it was ice it Mm -hmm. was icy and stuff and you know heavy winds and we ended up taking not the freeway but we ended up going down along the lake and you know you go to lincoln memorial drive i've never seen waves like that in my life i mean these were like <laughs> 10 20 that. foot waves yep. i mean it was i'm like god this would be you know people don't really surf in lake michigan but this would be if you were a surfer you know this would be you know go out there and surf in this sure, type yeah, of yeah. thing time was then um so and and it was it, it, but it kind of got better. That was like at seven in the morning when I was on the, uh, there, and and I'm I'm glad. I mean, as I said, I yes, it was a bust forecast. Yes, they got it wrong. But at the same time, I'm never going to criticize when it turns out to, when it turns out to be two inches and supposed to ten inches. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're going to have that bust forecast, I, I'd rather you That's be That's the way wrong. you want it to go, right? right? Yeah. So I'm I'm looking at the long term. They're they're saying maybe Friday is a significant snowfall mm-hmm. possibility that, as well. Friday night could be a thing. Yep. Well, we'll 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 see. We, if you if you keep predicting snowstorms, sooner or later you're going to get it right, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for everybody who loaded up on shovels and salt mm. and all those things, well, okay. Well, you you know you're going to use it at some point in time because it is only the middle of January, sure, right. and we are going to get hit sometime. Okay. Tuesday night we were just talking about how the president is going to be coming to the UWM Panther Arena, and you have some people who are upset. How dare UWM let him come there? And Chris, it, it's just. Again, the UWM doesn't control the arena, but even if they did, if you had a chance for the president of the United States to come, don't you want that? Well, here's an interesting thing. Whenever the president of the United States travels, there is a cost that is attached to the various communities right i mean it the the secret service and the federal government and the trump campaign cover certain costs but when you come into a town there's always going to be added things for increased police protection and things like that not necessarily for the candidate but for the safety of of citizens you know if you're um you know let's say you're going to have protesters well you don't want the protesters um, to, and you got a lot of people, the, the gates open, I believe, at three o'clock for, to, to get into the arena. So the gates open at three. Let's say you got protesters down there. You don't want fights breaking out between the protesters and the people waiting to get into the Trump rally. So you you have to have a local police presence. There is a cost to that. In Milwaukee, as a matter of policy, the city of Milwaukee does not, not charge campaigns for costs associated with politicians. So the, the the thinking in the city of Milwaukee is expressed by the mayor and other people is, hey, if the president wants to visit, we don't bill campaigns. The policy is we are pleased to have the president of the United States visit our community and we're going to do what it takes to make sure he is secure. That's Mayor Tom Barrett. And that's a policy they had towards Barack Obama. It's a policy they had towards George Bush. They don't charge. Other communities do charge they will send the campaign's bills um, For example, during the 2016 election, Hillary Cam- Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both campaigned in Green Bay. all right uh, Green Bay billed both campaigns. neither campaign has paid. Clinton owes about twelve thousand dollars to Green Bay. President Trump owns about owes about 9300. Uh, eau Claire. Camp, the candidates campaigned in Eau Claire. The Clinton campaign owes Eau Claire, according to Eau Claire, 12500 The Trump campaign owes $47,000. And they're saying that they haven't paid us. We've sent them bills and they haven't paid. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am curious. Do you think campaigns should be required to pay for Extra security that a particular city puts on. City of Milwaukee says no. It says no, we don't, we, we don't do it. We're pleased to have the campaigns here. And yes, we understand that means we have to reshift police and things like that. Um, but, you know, we're pleased to have the campaigns here. We're not going to charge the politicians for doing that. Eau Claire, Green Bay, La Crosse. They take a different point of view. Hey, if you're going to come into our town and that because you're here means we have to add extra cops or whatever we expect you to pay, which philosophy is right? Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. I know you may disagree with me. But actually, this is one, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, mark the tape. I, I think Tom Barrett is right. I think if, for example, a presidential candidate or the president of the United States wants to come to Milwaukee, I don't think the campaign should have to pick up the costs associated with whatever the local government has to do to make sure, I don't know, local citizens stay safe during that rally. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I say this about Donald Trump. I say it about Hillary Clinton. I would say it about, you know, any of the other Democrat candidates that come. I don't think the campaigns should have to pay for added police when they arrive. What do you think? We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of our texters does make an interesting point, Jeff. I, I disagree with you. I think the campaign should pay. I find it interesting that Mayor Tom Barrett takes this stance that the city shouldn't charge the campaigns, but then he wants to charge Summerfest. Yeah, It's not apples and oranges, but that is an interesting irony. I guess my point is this. I, I think that when, when big events happen in a city, part of... Part of an, and a presidential visit or a campaign visit by a Bernie Sanders. I, I don't want to be partisan about this. But okay, that that that's a big deal. It, it brings a value to the city. I mean, I think the campaign is obviously responsible for security costs um, in the facility. It's obviously responsible for renting the facility. But if just because the candidate is going to be there, that means that the city of Milwaukee or the city of La Crosse or the city of Green Bay thinks they have to add extra help. Well, I. I I think that all kind of comes with the territory. I mean, here, let me give you an example. When the Packers win the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks, if they decide that they want to host a, a rally, um, inside rally at the Brown County Arena, for example, all right, I mean, sh- should Brown County bill bill the Packers if the Packers, hey, we, we've had to add extra security and we need additional sheriff's deputies on the roadways and things, and so we've had to add overtime, so we're going to charge you for that. I mean, do, do we... Is it really their responsibility, or does that all kind of get rolled into the budget as something that, well, okay, this is an event that's going on, and we've got to provide protection for the people? Let's start with Brett. Brett, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
3: I think if they're a winning campaign, they should not have to
4: pay the city because they're they're basically president. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. After. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to let you go because you're you're you, you got to, when people when you call in, you got to turn down your radio because we have this thing called a delay, and you hear yourself like six seconds later and it confuses you and it confuses me as well. Um, Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Jeff, if the city in question was not able to refuse the candidate from coming, then I would say they have the right and expectation for the candidate to pay. However, you know what you're getting into regarding protection, potential revenue. If you manage the community where a high-profile politician is campaigning, planning to campaign, you you can't have it both ways. And, And I guess, see, I think there's some stuff that the candidates, the campaigns, have to be responsible for. Obviously, renting the arena. They've got their own security costs. In the case of the president, all, I mean, the, the campaign gets rents the arena. You know, Secret Service has protection details and things that follow the president. But as far as the, this, the collateral stuff that's on the streets, I do think that it's it's bad policy for a city to start saying well we're we're going to charge campaigns we're going to charge people for the, this stuff just because you're popular or just because you are are staging a rally and and let me just to what about candidates who don't have the wherewithal of a Hillary Clinton or don't have the wherewithal of a Donald Trump campaign you know what about a candidate that i don't know an up and coming candidate that that might want to do a rally on the UWM campus. And so they rent the field house or whatever they're going to do, but the city of Milwaukee were to say, okay, well, you know, you're a national candidate. We're concerned. We think that, you know, maybe you're going to draw 1,000 people. We're going to have to provide, you know, X number of police to handle, you know, traffic and things like that. And we expect you to pay thousands of dollars. What about the candidate that, that can't? can't afford to pay that. And I know maybe you roll your eyes and say, well, then they're not really a candidate. Well, okay, do, do, we want the, do we want an individual city making those determinations? I also, even if you disagree with me, I think there needs to be something uniform written into the law one way or the other. I, I don't think it should be ad hoc. Well, Green Bay decides we want to charge. Milwaukee says we're not going to charge. I mean, I, I think... You know, it shouldn't be city by city. Either this is something that candidates should have to pay for or it's something that should be provided. Mark, Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. What do you think?
3: You know, I think it absolutely is apples and oranges because it's different when you're talking about Summerfest or, or anything else like that. These are candidates that are running for office and they assume the cost and responsibilities for running for office and that's what they raise funds for. Uh, at the bottom line, it should go down to the candidate and their fundraising to pay for the extra things, especially including police costs. And this what if isn't it, anything new. Candidates have been doing that for a long well, time. Well, what
1: if the candidate what, – what, well, see, the candidate, for the sake of argument – has no control over what the police do? What if the campaign just says, look, I, I, it's not my problem. I mean, I, I'm renting the hall. I've got security. I'm going to hire X number of off-duty police officers that are going provide, to provide security in the venue. But I I don't know how many people are going to come. I, I'm i not asking you to put police officers out there and, you know, and run traffic control and take care of parking.
3: I think, uh... <laughs> I think that's a cop out answer because you know that it's going to require police presence and security and if you're if you're trying to act like it's not or like it's not your problem then the only people you're cutting out and doing a disservice to is the police department who has to front all these costs and the taxpayers of the city that you're hosting a rally in. Okay, well, if that's say- your responsibility, and to act like it's not, or to say, well, that's not my problem, that just pushes the burden off onto the taxpayers you and the police there- department
1: of the city you're in. Okay, do you think there is an advantage to having... A candidate, and again, I, I, you know, let's, let's, we're not talking about Donald Trump necessarily. Hillary Clinton, you know, who, Elizabeth Warren, whatever. Do you think there is an advantage to a candidate having a big rally in a particular community? I mean, people coming into the downtown area who wouldn't come otherwise and maybe eating dinner or, you know, paying for parking or things like that.
3: There are advantages and there are drawbacks. Mm-hmm. The advantages, of course, like with any influx, uh, like with the upcoming DNC, yeah. you know there's going to be a lot of businesses benefiting from that, so there is an upside to it. But the money that pays our police officers comes from somewhere. And if we, the taxpayers of Milwaukee or whatever county you live in, now have to sit there and and put the burden for every single rally that tries to come in, we, we aren't made of money. And it's got to come from somewhere. It has always been precedented that it's come and been paid for by the candidate who's hosting that rally. Well, no, That's you know, their you say, responsibility, well, no, no say, matter what candidate well, let me it stop.
1: is. You, you say, pres- "Milwaukee doesn't charge." So, I mean, Milwaukee has never charged. I think most communities don't charge. The, the ones that do are probably in in the minority. But let me ask you this: another question. Would you apply the same thing to say a concert at Miller Park?
3: A concert at Miller Park. Yeah. That's inherently different because that is a, a private event hosted by someone for a for-profit organization, and this is a political event hosted by a political party that is running for office. But, but, inherently well, different, and but, I don't think you can compare the two.
1: Well, ones. no, but wouldn't it, wouldn't you be able to make a much stronger argument that for the private for-profit? For enterprise there they should definitely pay for you know added police uh, along the freeways or whatever because they're making money off it the trump campaign or the clinton campaign or the sanders campaign they're not making money
3: well while while that may or may not be the case i still think that it falls to the candidate and that both sides of the aisle not a partisan issue whichever candidate it is that happens to be i still think that it falls to them
1: okay good enough that's and that's where the debate lies i mean i guess See see to me the, the stronger argument if you want to make that argument is to say, yeah, you bet if if you've got if you've got a performer coming to Miller Park or coming to the Riverside Theater and, you know, we, we know it's gonna be packed or come into the, the you know, Fi or whatever and we know it's gonna be packed and we're gonna to have to have extra police, you know, directing traffic and things like that. I, I think you've got a much stronger argument to say, Yeah, we, we should expect the you know, we should expect the, the performer to or the promoter or whatever, we should expect them to pay for any added police overtime that we have outside of just whatever security we've been hired to do because you're making money on that. With with the campaigns, I think it's a less strong argument because you have this pesky thing called the First Amendment. In any event, Milwaukee doesn't charge. Other places do. Um, The Trump campaign, the Clinton campaign, they have not been in a hurry to pay moving forward and still the campaigns show up. This is Jeff Wagner.
3: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Update to a story that Tony was just telling you about. Uh, Ozaki County Judge Paul Malloy has, in fact, found the State Elections Commission, at least the three Democrat members of the commission, has found them in contempt for failure to follow his order that they begin the purge of the voting rolls. The way it stands right now is the commission deadlocked three to three Republicans saying, we got to follow the judge's order. Democrats saying, no, we're not. And he's now said that he's going to start fining $250 a piece, the Democrat members of the state elections board for not doing this. He's also going to find the commission $50 a a day. And um, so unless there is a stay of this order by a higher court, presumably the Elections Commission is going to have to start following the order of the judge because, you know, that that's kind of how it works. Even if you disagree with a court order, your remedy is to appeal, to seek a stay, but you can't just ignore the order. I want to talk about the merits of this. And, you know, the more I think about this, the more I am convinced that the Judge Malloy is right, as certainly as a matter of law. He's saying, hey, look, we, I didn't write this law. we got to follow the law but also that the law is not unreasonable. Our number, if you want to weigh in, is 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, here, here's the basis of the law. It is important that voting rolls be accurate. Can, can we all agree with that? And when people move, they are no longer allowed to vote in the municipality that they moved from. Okay, I, I used to live in Whitefish Bay. I don't live in Whitefish Bay anymore all right so if I were to show up in Whitefish Bay on Election Day and want to vote and my name was on the, the thing and I showed them a photo ID all right, they would let me vote and then I could go presumably and vote somewhere else you know where, where I currently live it is important that roles voter rolls, be accurate now when I moved I didn't send a letter to the elections commission or the local village clerk saying, Hey, I've lived here for thirty years, but I'm moving. I, I just I just moved. That wasn't on my agenda of things to do and I registered to vote immediately in the area where I lived. All right? Most people don't notify the village clerk and say, take me off the rolls. So how does the election board or a village clerk know that you're supposed to be removed from the rolls? Well in Wisconsin, what the law does is the law Provides that they use something called the Electronic Registration Information Center. What is that? Well, this is something that I think 28 states use in an effort to try to keep voter rolls current. So what happens is if somebody changes their residence, say you notify the post office. You say, all right, uh, you know, I, I want my mail forwarded from Whitefish Bay to some other place. That 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 will generate an entry saying hey that the mail has been forwarded. If you change the registration on your car with the state DMV, hey you know my my place of residence, or you just you say hey I license button for my driver's license. I've moved. I now live in Washington County. All right. So you tell the DMV that. What will happen is that information will be provided. To this electronic registration information center and then the electronic information registration center will send that information to the elections board or to the local clerk saying hey we've got information suggesting that Jeff has moved okay fine now that doesn't necessarily mean that I've permanently changed my residence most times it does most times it does, but there could be exceptions. Maybe, um, I don't know, I was going down to Florida for just a, a couple months, so I was having my mail forwarded there. Maybe that's it. Maybe it was a deal where I, um, I'm changing the registration on my car and I'm sending it out to Washington County. But I'm still living in Milwaukee. So there might be exceptions. Most of the times it's not the case, but there could be exceptions. So that's why you can't just automatically take somebody's name off the voter rolls just because you get the information suggesting that in all likelihood they've moved. But there might be exceptions. Understood. So the law says what you do once you get this information saying that there's reliable evidence that a person may have changed their residence, you, you send them a letter. And the letter says, hey, we've gotten information suggesting you might have changed your residence. And what we need you to do is we need you to send this back and tell us whether you're still living, you know, at this place. And if you don't tell us that you're still living at this place, well, your name's going to be removed from the rolls. That, that's how the process works. So it appears that in the, across the state, about 200,000 names have been referred from this, right? And what they've done is they ended up sending out letters. They sent out 234,000 letters. 60,000 were returned as undeliverable as of early December, meaning the addresses aren't good. Um, About 2,300 said they continue to live at their address, and about 16,500 had registered to vote at new addresses. Right. And that leaves the vast balance of people who just didn't respond to this, meaning that they probably had, in fact, moved. All right. Not a perfect system, but it's the way they have of cleaning up the rolls. So the state elections commission decided we're not going to clean up the roll. We're we're we know what the law says, and the law says these names have to be removed within 30 days if we don't get a response to this letter. But we don't want to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to wait a year to remove these. We're going to wait until after the next couple elections. And you have the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty that sues and says, hey, you can't do that. The law says they got to be taken off. Take them off. And the judge orders the Elections Commission to take the names off if people haven't responded. And the Elections Commission thus far is refusing to do that. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. If I were designing this law, do I do I think I might have written it a little bit differently? Do I think maybe I would have said, let, let's send two postcards or two letters? Maybe. I, I might have done that. But this does not strike me as an unreasonable law. And if we all agree that getting people who aren't properly or no longer allowed to vote in a particular place because they moved, getting them off the rolls, I don't have a problem with this. 855-616-1620. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. And again, the way this is being portrayed in some national circles and some state circles is this is another one of these evil attempts by the conservatives to suppress the, the vote. To which I would say you know, it's, it's just it's an effort to make sure that the voting rolls are current and that the people who are voting, who are voting actually live Where they're supposed to vote, and by the way, in Wisconsin we have same-day registration. So if you, for example, wrongly got one of these letters, you know, and are still entitled to vote at your current address, well, all right, you get to the polls. Turns out that there's been you've been mistakenly removed. You know, you you can re-register. We have same-day registration. Now, is that a bit of an inconvenience? Yes, yes, it is. Is this a perfect system? No. But to me, it does make sense. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. And big picture is, I don't think, I don't think a government agency can simply do what the Elections Board has been doing, which is ignore the judge's ruling. You know, again, if you don't like a ruling, you go to appeals court and you try to get the appeals court to stay the order. That has not happened yet. Until you get a court stay, you got to do what the judge has told you to do. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text line we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on.
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: 855-616-1620. Barbara in Sturgeon Bay. Hi, Barbara. Hi. How are you doing, Jeff? I am well, thank you. I love your part of the state, but I didn't like driving home from there last night.
4: Yeah, I, <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I wanted to say that uh, that election follow-up is not a perfect system. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I, got, I changed from my, and I still was living in Greenfield. I'm sure if you'll remember our property. We were the one that were forced to have that watershed put in. Oh, sure, okay. That's now really the river. Anyway, um, I changed from the address where I was living full-time to the post office. And I did get a card like that, saying, you know, about voting and everything. And I thought, what are they talking about? Because that was the first I had ever heard of it. Right. So, okay, so this time when I moved, definitely May 1st, up to Sturgeon Bay, okay? Right. I um, registered at the police department for my driver's license, because I had just bought up driver's license the prior year. And the woman said, well, you can do it two ways. You can either pay for another full license or use this one with your old address. And we noted in our records that if something does happen, you know, somebody would be notified.
1: Yeah, by by the way, that's what... I have a a
4: notice for this one. Well, no, you you
1: may or may not have. They would have sent the notice to your old address. It might have been returned as undeliverable.
4: Yep, see? You know why? Because they only keep it for so many
1: months. Right. Right. So that that. But but the fact yeah. is, you have you have in fact moved. So that that's if yes. you didn't get a, if you didn't get a letter, it might very well be that it went to your old. I look. I I moved a couple of years ago. I didn't get a letter either. But my guess is it went yeah. to it went to the old address, and so they uh-huh. I'm not there anymore. Anyways, but yeah, no. But It's not a. By the way, thanks for it's not a perfect system, and I, I did exactly what you did. I never. You don't need – okay, so my driver's license expires whenever my driver's license expires. You don't have to f- – when you change addresses, you don't have to get a new driver's license. you have to you're supposed to notify the DMV that you've you've made that address change so you don't have to go through the cost and expense of getting the the new one and then when your driver's your old one expires, then you go in and you get the one with a new address i I mean I did the same thing. so the DMV has my new address as my address of record, even though on my driver's license it lists my my old address. But my guess is in your situation, the postcard was sent. It went to the old address and then got returned as undeliverable, which again indicates that there's evidence that you have, have moved. Um, so, I mean, that's what I draw from most of them. Is it a perfect system? No. I mean, again, I, I I can come up with situations. There's reasons why, for example, you might change where you're housing your car. You might change the the county of registration without necessarily moving. That's going to be the minority of cases. But it, is it possible? Yeah. Which is why they ask you to just return the call. Um, th- that's where I think it it comes down to. Let's see. Uh, dot 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 dot. Jeff. Um, it is an inconvenience, and that is all the GOP wants. Inconvenience, uh, enough voters to win the election. All the GOP does is make it harder to vote. Spits in the face of democracy. We can fight wars to give citizens in other countries the right to vote, but consistently disenfranchise our own voters. Hmm. Why Why does it disenfranchise voters to make sure... That if somebody is voting, they're voting in the municipality that they are supposed to vote or that they're not voting twice. I mean, I guess that's that's what I, I just don't understand about this. And especially in Wisconsin, where you have same day registration, like I say, you show up at the polls. You find out that you are no longer in the roles. Maybe you're one of those unicorns who's been improperly removed. Well, my guess is what they're going to let you do. First of all, you have same-day registration, so you can register on the spot, or alternatively, What you can do is you're going to probably be allowed to cast a provisional ballot and then go in and demonstrate that, hey, I, I, you know, I really belonged here in the first place. This idea of, gee, you you can't do anything to make sure that the voting rolls are accurate, that that's automatically, you know, disenfranchisement. I mean, don't we have an interest? And it's not just you know, voting for, you know, whichever candidate you want to vote for, but it's also voting in the, the right place. I mean, if you no longer live in a municipality, you shouldn't be voting in that municipality. You should be voting, you know, with the municipality where you currently live. And there's got to be ways of trying to figure out, you know, how to purge names from the rolls. Because let's face it, I think what everybody would agree in connection with this is even if, There might be a small number of people who really are still at the same address. The vast majority of people that are going to have told the post office that they've changed their permanent address or the vast majority of people who've told the Department of Transportation, the the DOT, the DMV, that they've changed their license because they live somewhere else. The vast majority of those people have moved and no longer reside where they used to what in the world is the interest in keeping those names on the poll rolls when those people no longer have a right to vote? And if you want to call it voter suppression, fine, but I think that that's that's unfair. And as it stands now, the law says this is the process we follow. I don't think that the law is unconstitutional. Again, if I were in the legislature, I might have perhaps written it differently maybe have a second postcard have to be sent something like that but at the end of the day we have an interest in making sure that the roles are accurate and right now we have a law that says this is what you're supposed to do and for the elections commission to just decide we're not going to follow it it doesn't work that way this is jeff wagner
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: So very glad to have you with us. I ran into one of my colleagues in the hall. said, so you were really tired. I was listening to your story about how you got back from the Packers game about like 2.15 in the morning. So yeah, well, it wasn't just that. I, I didn't get to bed until after three. Well well, why not? Well, I have this dog. I, I, I am the ultimate in soft touches, so we were gone from like eleven in the morning until we we got back after two o'clock, and, and we we didn't leave the dog. And it, somebody came over and took her out a couple times, but still, she she's used to us being around. So you know, she by the time we get home about two o'clock in the morning, tail's wagging, but she's like, "Okay, I've been sleeping all day. I'm ready to play." So now the only thing I want to do at two thirty in the morning is just kind of crawl into bed and zone out till the alarm goes out, whatever. But I've got this dog who's been waiting all day and all night and who wants to play. And so I, I think my wife is just kind of like shaking her head. I married this moron. So I'm, I'm sitting in, and my dog loves to play fetch. That's that's a little ball and that's the thing. I'm sitting on the floor like I do, throwing the ball back and forth at two thirty five in the morning because the dog wants to play, and I am feeling guilty that I have left the dog unattended for, you know, 17 hours. And again, we, we had somebody came over and let her out a couple times, but it's like, oh my gosh and golly. So, you know, we end up playing fetch and then the, some of the other games we play for about like 25 minutes. So next thing I know, it's three o'clock in the morning thinking, huh, that alarm is going to come off all, awful early. But that's, that's one of the benefits of having a pet, wouldn't trade it. Okay, this is a very interesting story, and I want to get your reaction to it. Do you think crime is getting better in the city of Milwaukee? And I don't mean do I think criminals are being smarter. I think do you, do you think that, that the city of Milwaukee is getting a handle on its crime problem, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Akinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I bring this up because the, the new crime numbers are out. Now, we have a new police chief, Alfonso Morales, who I think has done a very, very good job. And if you look at the numbers, I, I think that one of the reasons we had the crime rate where it was Milwaukee a few years back is, I think, because of some very, very poor policy decisions implemented by the former police chief at the request of or insistence of the mayor. All right. We, we've, and we were talking, of course, about the police pursuit policy. We, we've moved away from that. The numbers aren't great, but they are encouraging. Here's what they're reporting. Okay, the homicide rate has dropped. Now, let me say at the beginning, and I want to be consistent here. This is something I've been saying about homicide rates for all 20-plus years that I've been on the air. Homicide rates are an unreliable predictor of a crime level because anytime somebody is shot, it is there but for the grace of God that you don't die. I mean, that, that's just, the reality. anytime you're shot, you you could die. So sometimes the fact that, oh, the, the homicide rate went down, that's, sometimes it's just dumb luck that you, you know, that the bullet didn't hit an artery. Sometimes it's a tribute to emergency medicine or whatever. So you, you always want the homicide rates to go down. Don't, don't get me wrong. You want as few homicides as possible. But I've always argued that that's kind of an unreliable indicator. Nevertheless, there have been improvements. 2019, in the city of Milwaukee, they had 97 homicides, under 100. Very, very good. 19, uh, 2018, there were 99. So the homicide level between um, 2018 and 2019 w- was was flat, but down, now, that's good. And in 2017, it was 119, all right? So the number of homicides over a two-year period, comparing 2017 to 2019, have dropped by 21. And that's that's a good thing. No question about it. That's a good thing. But let's look at the other numbers. If you go along with my belief that, like I say, a lot of times, homicides, it's it's tough to tell exactly because, you know, anytime you get shot, you, you could die. So let's look at shootings. Last year, 2019, you had 452 people in the city who were shot and survived. 2018, you had 476 people who were shot and survived. And in 2017, you had 558. So over a two year period, the number has gone from, of shootings, has gone from 558 to 452. And if you add shootings and homicides together, people who were shot but survived and people who were shot and died, 2017, you would have had. I don't know, let's see, the numbers would be dot, 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 carry the one, 600 and um, uh, about, you know, 665, 670 people. Um, whereas last year, the number, you know, 550 approximately. Progress, good numbers. The number of carjackings, and we had an out-of-control problem with carjackings. 2017, there were 452. 2018, there were 383. 2019, it had dropped to 346. I could go on and on, but if you look at some of the indicators that we talk about on this program, homicides, shootings, carjackings, all the numbers are moving in a positive direction, and actually a pretty dramatic increase if you look at 2017 versus 2019. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. As somebody who talks about crime a lot, here is my question. Are are things, is it safer in the city of Milwaukee than it was two years ago? And my answer would be, yes, it, it is. There's a lot of things that are going on, but you can't argue the numbers. Numbers statistically. And maybe it's we're finally getting some of the hardcore criminals off the street. Maybe some messages are getting across. But yes, it's getting better. Now, having said that, there's a long, long way to go. But do you feel safer today than you did, say, two or three years ago? Our number, 855 616 1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line we discuss in a moment.
0: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs>
1: We're back. Okay, here's a text. I received a text message from my son who attends a middle school about the police department um, entering the school after the office had called about a possible gunshot sound inside the school. Um, Social media is all over the area. People think everything is clear. Yeah, look, you're going to get all sorts of reports about this. And and I think, you know, when you, when you look at crime in the areas, when you look at crime in the city of Milwaukee, I think everybody would say it's at an unacceptable level. You've got way too much reckless driving. You've got way too many carjackings. You've got way too many robberies. You've got way too many shootings. You've got way too many homicides. I mean, I, I started... My career as a prosecutor, 100 homicides were unthinkable in the city of Milwaukee, and then it became the norm, and now we're back under 100. But I think everybody would say, starting with the mayor and the police chief, that 97, while it's better than 119 or whatever it was two years ago, that that's an unacceptable number. But the numbers do appear to be moving in the right direction. And I will tell you, I think one of the big factors in that, I think it's been the change in the police pursuit policy. The fact that instead of just letting bad guys drive away and and then go back on the streets to commit other crimes, we actually go after them and we actually catch them. I think that is a huge, huge factor because to me it tells me when you catch the bad guys, at least for a little while, you, you presumably get them off the street, and so they're they're not around to show up. You know, a day later and carjack someone else. Let's talk to Dave in Appleton. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Hi, Dave. Good afternoon. Um, I think the
3: numbers are a little skewed because this is just, correct me if I'm wrong, the city of Milwaukee, correct?
1: Yes, Yes, sir. Yeah.
3: And those of us that live, like, in Appleton, the city of Milwaukee is Wauwatosa, West Island, Greenfield, South Milwaukee. And I believe there was another news story today about how crime is going up in all of those mm-hmm. cities. So are you stopping crime or moving crime?
1: Well, that's a fair question. Suburbs. Well, I mean, that, that's no, I think that's a, that's a fair question, because I think one of the trends that we've seen is that criminals from Milwaukee <clears throat> have have been branching out you know, looking for targets of opportunity. Hey, let, let's go out to West Dallas, or let's go to South Milwaukee or let's go, you know, to Brown Deer or, or, or whatever. So, I mean, there, there is an element of that. But I, I think, I guess it's not to me an either-or question. It's not, gee, you know, maybe crime is going up in some of the suburbs because I think at least certain areas of crime probably are, like the car thefts and things like that. But But for the longest time, that was happening in the city, and it was also happening in in the suburbs. So, I, look, I, I guess what's going on here is, is, is there lots of crime to go around? There there absolutely is. And do you have criminals from Milwaukee who are looking for places where they think it'll be easier pickings? And that, I'm not saying it is. It's just where, where they think it'll be. Yeah, but again, I go back to my basic premise. I, I mean, I look at these numbers, and it tells me intuitively if they're on the right path. Now, that means they've got a long way. To go, But they're moving in the right direction. Again, I go back to this idea and, and I think it kind of came in with the new police chief. Now, I understand before Ed Flynn left, he was kind of forced by the Fire and Police Commission into this. But this idea that we're not going to just let the criminals get away. That's one of the things that I've seen. Now, I bring this up because there's lots of external pressure on the police department to go to catch and release. A lot of community groups out there who argue, hey, we're, we're incarcerating too many of this type of person or that type of person. We need all these different alternatives, etc., etc." et, cetera, et cetera. I think one of the lessons of these stories is that that policy didn't work when we just – look the other way when we tried to say okay let's try to find double and triple secret probation that didn't work we have been more aggressive in going after criminals over the last couple years and i think you're starting to see that in the numbers the biggest in my opinion mistake or one of the biggest mistakes you could make would be to reverse that trend and say okay well now here let's go let's go all touchy feely and and let's stop holding people accountable, or let's find alternatives to taking, gee, that guy who's just been involved in the armed carjacking, and instead of giving him his fifth chance, let's send him to jail, or let's send him to prison, Well, or or let's figure out a way to let him out of prison earlier. You start doing that, and what you're going to see, at least in my opinion, is those numbers that we're we're talking about that are moving in the right direction, you're going to see them, I think, spike up again. So long way to go, but credit where credit is due. I think the new police chief has done an outstanding job. And I think in this case, the Milwaukee mayor gets every right to go and say, Hey, look at these numbers. You know, still too high, but we are making progress. Now, what you got to figure out is where that progress is coming from and, you know, what you do next. To me, it's coming from a more engaged Milwaukee police department and don't do anything to reverse that trend. This is Jeff Wagner.
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Well, the story does not come from Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, it comes from a small town in Connecticut called Killingly. That's what it's named. Killingly. But it could come and may very well come from another town in Milwaukee in, in this area as well. And for people in Menominee Falls who are unhappy with the vote of the school board by a five to two basis. Five members voting to retire the Indian nickname. This, of course, was a subject of great consternation until the school board president and the not ready for primetime school superintendent decided "We're, we're going to change the name because some people might be offended. And we don't care that the vast majority of the population isn't offended by this. We don't care that the overwhelming majority of the school, the kids going to school, don't want to change the nickname. We know better and so they voted five to two by the end of the year, by the end of the school year to now change the nickname and they're going to move away from being the Indians. Well, it's interesting because the school board last July in this small town, Killingly, Connecticut, they had a similar issue. The school mascot was named. They were the, the Redmen. They were the Killingly Redmen which arguably is a lot more offensive than the Menominee Falls Indians, but I digress. So anyhow, the the same sort of thing played out. You had members of the school board who were substantially more enlightened, I guess, than the the general population, and they decided we've got to do away with this. And they went through a lot of the same hoops that the folks in Menominee Falls did. And again, it, it was pretty much a it was it was pretty much preordained predestined they 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 decided they were going to do this and so they ended up doing it the school board changed the name they moved from the Killingly Redmen to the Red Hawks all right well what happened was school boards were elected of course and the general population of this town got upset with the fact that you had a school board that was doing stuff that, well, just wasn't in line with what the overall population wanted. And so they had elections November for the school board. And what happened is people who opposed the change of nicknames won. And uh, the town council, it shifted, and it was five to four. Apparently, they have – it's Republican and Democrat. So based on the issue of the mascot change, you had five Republicans who got elected. They took control of the town council and the school board. And the school board, the new one, quickly voted to reinstate the term Redmond, which had become the first school, the school mascot since 1939. So what happened was the people spoke. They went out and they voted out the people who had made this change against the will of the general populace. And, and now they reverted back. So people tell me, oh, this Menominee Falls thing is settled. They're never going to be the Indians again. The forces of political correctness have won. Not Necessarily, not necessarily, because, you know, you have school board members that are going to be up for election this year in the spring and next year. You have school board members who voted for this who are eligible for recall. If if members of the Menominee Falls community are outraged enough about this, if you think you can't accomplish it. Well, um, all I got to tell you is same sort of issue in this Connecticut town. And the people of that town said, no, enough is enough. We're not going to be dictated to by the perpetually offended and the politically correct. You can do it in Menominee Falls if you want.